the last 12 months have been very long. It doesn't particularly matter our age or our stage, but the past 365 days or so have, have been exhausting, have been complicated. Our elders met this past Sunday, and as we gathered and as I was sharing, I said, it's hard to imagine that it was a year ago that we were sitting in our elder meeting in February of 2020 and deciding and discussing whether we would serve communion in March. We had a 20-minute conversation around the issue that because of the, the, the concerns around COVID, was it safe to serve communion in the sanctuary and the fellowship hall? And we made a decision not to serve communion. I don't think any of us ever thought that that would be the last time in a year that we would serve communion like that. And, and, and so it's been a, a, a strange year. It's been trying to, to cope with what we thought might last a month or two that is now extended in to 12 months. And, and it's been a season of planning and replanning and pivoting and repivoting and feeling like every time you kind of got things in line, the goalposts moved again and you had to look at things differently. And, and for certain types of personalities, including mine, um, it, it has been a struggle in the sense of that, that I love to problem solve. I, I love to try and figure out what's coming next. What do we need to be about? What are the things we ought to be talking about? And when you feel like every day things change, it can be exhausting. And, and it can also work into a personality type like mine where, where you just – you start to thrive on busyness and you start to, to base your success on, on how much am I working and I came across this quote from Barbara Brown Taylor a while ago that really convicted me. And here's what she said. Some of us have made an idol of exhaustion. The only time we know we have done enough is when we are running on empty and when the ones we love most are the ones we see the least. When we lie down to sleep at night, we offer our full appointment calendars to God in lieu of prayer, believing that God, who is as busy as we are, will surely understand. And I read that and I was convicted. That how often in my life I talk about my exhaustion and I make it an idol that I don't take time to truly rest, that I think my busyness defines me, that I think my skill sets of problem solving and, and working hard to figure this all out is what really matters. And I think that deep within, within me and within others and perhaps within you, is this sense of restlessness. God calls us to rest, but, but we are restless St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. And I think we tend to, to, to feel as though we, we've got to keep moving. We, we have to impress God with our, appointment, with our appointments or our calendars or how busy we are. We have to look busy so that others think that we are impressive. 
And yet deep down, some of us wonder, am I just faking the whole thing? Is somebody going to figure it out? Is somebody going to realize that I'm really kind of a fraud? And we know that that's not true, but, but it's the sense of saying that, that we, we, we have to be moving. We have to be active. We, we, we grow uncomfortable when we're, not, when we're not weary. We make exhaustion an idol. But this is not the plan that God has for us. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about rest and I want to talk about Sabbath. Now, the word Sabbath is, is not a word that we use very often. We, we hear in the, the Old Testament scripture this idea of keeping the Sabbath, and we want to talk about that today, but, but talk about it in context of what it means for us today living in 2021. How do we find rest? How do we find Sabbath? And, and, and what, do the, what do the scriptures have to say to us? So we're in Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be reading the first 11 verses as we try to, to make sense of what the preacher has to say to his congregation about making sure that we take the Sabbath rest. And, and what you're going to hear in this text is, is the preacher both looks backwards towards to the Sabbath and also eventually to the final Sabbath, the final rest that we'll one day enjoy with God. And so we're going to consider those, but we also want to think about what does it mean to Sabbath or to rest in God today? What does that look like for you and for me? So Hebrews chapter four, verse one, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest, God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. He's speaking about the nation of Israel here. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on an on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, these words on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And so the preacher begins with a warning. He looks back and he says, the thing that you have to be careful of is don't be like Israel. God brought them out of slavery. God raised up Moses as their liberator. We talked about Moses last week. We talked about the faithfulness of Moses and, and God brought Moses to the people in Egypt and he led them out of their slavery toward the promised land. 
There was promise of rest. There was promise of restoration. The promised land, in a sense, was to be the new Eden. It was to be paradise. It was the place where God would dwell amongst his people, and his people would worship him. They would reflect his glory into the world. They would reflect the praises of creation back to God. This was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses is leading the people there. But do you remember what happens right as they get to the outskirts of Canaan? Right as they get to the outskirts of the promised land, they send in 12 spies to check out the land. And this happens in Numbers chapter 13. A spy from each tribe. And they go in and they look at the land and they come back and report to the people and report to Moses. They're right on the edge of God's promised rest. And there's a majority report and a minority report. 10 of the spies say the land is occupied. The land, there are giants that live in the land. We look like grasshoppers. There's no way that we can take this land. And yet Joshua and Caleb both say, both remind us, Caleb especially says, remember the promise. Remember what God has told us. As we move into Numbers chapter 14, we discover the people murmuring and grumbling against Moses and saying, we wish we were back in Egypt. We wish we were enslaved rather than experiencing the freedom. And God grows angry. And this is what we read in Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. The Lord replied. This is the Lord replying to Moses. I have forgiven them. I have forgiven them, your people, as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory And saw the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. No one will see the land. The people were disobedient. The people wanted to rewrite the narrative. The people wanted to rewrite the story. They didn't trust God's plan. They grew restless, even though God had promised them rest. And an entire generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and never got into the promised land, never got to experience God's rest. And the preacher of Hebrews says, be very careful that this doesn't happen to you. So let's think about this idea of Sabbath then. In order to do that, I want to go back to the Ten Commandments. And as you may recall, we read uh, the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus as well as in the book of Deuteronomy. Both times in the Ten Commandments, we read that we are to observe the Sabbath. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, we're going to start there. God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. 
For in six days the Lord made the earth, made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the book of Exodus is telling us that God rested, that the part of the rhythm of creation is God laboring for six days and resting on the seventh. Then we turn our attention over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'm only going to read the, the 15th verse here. Um, and, and that's because the, the basically the, the first part of, of this keeping the Sabbath is the same that we just read in Exodus. But it's interesting to me that in Deuteronomy, there's a different reason given for keeping the Sabbath. It's the only time this happens in the Ten Commandments when reasons are given. They're always the same reasons. But Exodus tells us to keep the Sabbath because God created for six days and then rested on the seventh. But listen to the rationale in Deuteronomy. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, your God, the Lord your God, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are told to observe the Sabbath because they were enslaved for 400 years. That the very image of God had been marred because they were not free. They had been enslaved. And so God is saying, you need to take a break. You never had a day. You never were able to worship. You were never able to be truly free. And so because you were enslaved for 400 years, one day a week, I want you to rest. I want you to abide in me. Eugene Peterson says, hey, this is the idea of Exodus tells us we need to pray. Deuteronomy tells us we need to play. That part of what the Sabbath is to be about is there's some praying and there's some playing. There's some reflecting. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But I think for many of us, this idea of Sabbath is very foreign. And I will admit, it's hard for me. I have tried to be diligent in practicing Sabbath. And most often, I have completely failed. Because it's hard to get into that rhythm of having a day, of having a time set aside just for God, just to, just to, just to sort of unplug, if you will. But what we have to remember is that Sabbath is built in to the very fabric of creation. And that's part of why I think Exodus and Deuteronomy both give us different reasons. Exodus points us back to the creation. So so let's think about all the way back to Genesis. And it's important for us to understand how the Jewish people understood the day. Because they look at the day differently than we do. We think, we tend to think, the day starts in the morning. When we get up, when we get our cup of coffee, when we read the news, when we, whatever it is that we do early in the morning, that's when our day begins. But if you go back to the creation story, and I'm not going to look at this in Genesis chapter 1, but it's fascinating to me because we read that there was evening and there was morning. That for the Jewish people, the day begins in the evening. Every day of creation, we read There was evening first, and then there was morning. And I think this is important for us to see because it it reminds us that that it forces us to remember that God is at work even when we are resting because we think of God really kind of only being active when we're awake, when we're doing things. Eugene Peterson wrote this um, years and years and, and, and years ago, and, and, and I think it's, it's, it's very valuable for us in our understanding 
of, of this, this rhythm that God has for us. He wrote, the Hebrew evening morning sequence conditions, conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. As we sleep, he develops his covenant. We wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action. We respond in faith, in work, but always grace is previous. Grace is primary. We wake into a world we did not make, into a salvation we did not earn, evening. God begins, without our help, his creative day. Morning, God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work he initiated. Creation and covenant are sheer grace and there to greet us every morning. You see, this is what the author of Genesis was getting at. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. But God had started forming and shaping in the evening. And I love how Peterson gets at this, because he says, what we need to understand is that while we are sleeping, I think sometimes we just have to go to sleep so God can get some work done, so God can get into our brains and into our minds the things that we really need to hear. And that there is this rhythm of creation. As Peterson says, God begins without our help, his creative day, and then we get to awaken into that. And and I find this very freeing because what it says to me is that I, I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't, I don't have to accomplish everything because God is still at this work that he, is, that he is doing, that it's not all up to me. I get to rest because God is at work. And that's an incredible gift given to us. That as we move into this rhythm of creation that comes all the way back in Genesis, We see the incredible work that God is calling us to be about, but we also see this idea that we are to be a people who learn how to rest. And I believe the only way that we find true rest is by looking to Jesus. He is our only hope. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We'll take a look at chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And this is what we read, familiar words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, And my burden is light. Come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. All of you who feel forgotten and lonely. 
All of you who wonder, does anybody notice me? All of you who are tired, weary, exhausted, all of you who are restless, Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest. And then he says, and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as you take my yoke, he says, and as you learn from me, you will find rest for your souls. And one of the reasons I love this image of the yoke is that Jesus is saying, you, you still get to work with me and walk with me. The yoke, you put it on two animals to, to move a plow or to move some, some object, and they would work together on that. And Jesus says, the rest I'm offering you it is not that you just get to hang out and sit on a stool like I'm sitting here on a stool preaching to you all today. It's not that. It's that we get to be co-laborers with Jesus. Work with me and walk with me is what Jesus is saying. And you will find rest for your souls. And so I want to encourage us to think about what does that Sabbath rest look like? What does it look like to find our rest in Jesus? And I'm going to share six thoughts. These are from Tim Keller. This is something I came across actually while I was researching for this sermon. And I thought they were really helpful because I think sometimes a pastor or a preacher or a teacher talks about Sabbath, but people are like, I really don't know how to practically enact Sabbath or rest into my life. And so Keller gives us six suggestions, which, which I find very helpful. And we'll put these up so you can kind of read these and, and write these down. And here's what he says. He says, first of all, set aside time that is completely unplanned. Rest and Sabbath is not when we slot out our day off or whatever it is that, that this is all the things we're going to do. Keller says, no, just leave some space because for those of us who like to control things and those of us who like to plan things, I'm speaking of myself here. And those of us who, when we go on vacation, like to slot everything out. Sometimes with Sabbath, we don't do that. We just have unplanned time to see what might actually happen during that time. Secondly, he says, take some avocational time. And that's our avocations. That's not our vocation, our our calling. Avocation is, what do we love to do? Whether it's hiking, woodworking, surfing. Take some time as you rest to do that which you love. That's what Eugene Peterson gets at when he's saying, hey, we need to spend some time playing. It's not just about praying. Which is the third thing then, which is take some contemplative time. Take some time to pray, to study, to reflect, to journal, to go deeper into the Psalms, to go deeper into whatever it is that you might be reading. Take some contemplative time. Fourth thing is this. Take some aesthetic time. Look around at what God has created. I try once a week to go down and either run or walk on the beach just because because it's amazing that we get to see what we get to see. It's It's what God did in the creation story. He takes, his, he takes a step back and he says, man, this is good. As he surveys the work that he has done. So take some time for aesthetics to look around and see what God has done. The fifth thing is this. Take some time for relationships, friends, family. Make some time for those things. And the final one, which I really like this, and I never really thought about this. He says, inject Sabbath into your work. 
And, and the idea is this, that, that when we read the Sabbath laws, often what is also connected to them are the gleaning laws. Now, gleanings, you may remember, is, is when owners of the field were, were picking their crops or harvesting their crops, they were told to leave room at the edges for those who had nothing. Don't, don't harvest all the way to the edge of your property, but leave some room for those who are impoverished to come and glean from the fields. And the idea is this, of what Keller's getting out of this is saying, is saying, in our lives, if we inject some Sabbath, it means that we, we, don't have to hard, we don't have to work to the very edge of the field every day. That we don't have to spend all those extra hours trying to get just a little bit more done. That sometimes we need to inject Sabbath even into our work day and realize we don't have to work as hard. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to work hard. I'm just saying we don't have to do as much. Be a little more intentional about how we're setting boundaries and how we're setting margins. Injecting Sabbath into our work. And we know that one day there will be the final Sabbath rest. When Jesus returns, when he restores all things, when we get to enter into the promised land, when we get to see what paradise is all about. And so we look forward to that day. We don't want to miss it. And so we are called to be faithful as we live and as we follow Jesus, as we continue to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And one of the ways we put the pieces of the puzzle together is to find rest in Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, he says, and I will give you rest. And it is here, here at this table that we encounter the one who says, find rest in me, find hope in me, find restoration in me. And so I invite you now to pray with me. God, thank you that in Jesus we find our perfect rest. We find that Sabbath rest. We find that place, Lord, where we are freed from the burdens that hold us back, the things that enslave us. We find rest in the one who, who has done the work. God, when you worked for six days creating it all and then you rested, meaning that you were satisfied with what you have done. And God, in Jesus, we encounter that one. So would you feed us now at this table? Would you remind us of who you are and what you have done for us? Would you let us find our rest in you? We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.